1963, Bob Dylan wrote this. Come gather round people wherever you roam and admit that the waters around you have grown and accept that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. If your time to you is worth saving, then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone for the times they are a-changing. No one knew that? He said, the order is rapidly fading, and the first one now will later be last. The times, they are a-changing. It was true then, and it is still today. Whether we're talking about simply a, a new president, an administration, or a new threat like ISIS or Ebola, or a new phone, new technology, a new public opinion like homosexual marriage or a president's approval rating. Each one of those, each little change contributes to a whole. In the times, they are a-changing. And not always for the better. If Dylan represented a, a restless generation in 1963, then the who may have represented a somewhat cynical backlash almost a decade later. I'll tip my hat to the new constitution, take a bow for the new revolution, smile and grin at the change all around, pick up my guitar and play just like yesterday, then I'll get on my knees and pray that we don't get fooled again. Why? Because the new boss is the same as the old boss, right? Even today there are those who are restless for change and those who are cynical of change. There are progressives who are eager for the new and eager to shake off the old, whatever that old or new may be. And there are traditionalists who still scratch and claw to keep whatever is left of the good old days. There are those who constantly clamor for something new, but forget history, that the old boss is the same as the new boss, or the new boss is the same as the old boss. The problems change. Uh, but they don't go away. Before I'm tempted to quote any more classic rock, let's talk about Jesus. How does this relate to Jesus? Was Jesus a traditionalist or a progressive? Well, having that unique privilege of being eternal, in some ways he was a quintessential traditionalist. He's the oldest traditionalist of all. But the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, also stress that Jesus did and taught radically new things. That tension is essential to understanding our passage this morning. You see, Jesus wasn't novel, but he was absolutely shocking to religious traditionalists. He was ushering in something new, but it was something that was promised from millennia ago. He was bringing about change, but not that kind of change that has the shelf life of uh, the hippie movement, or less than that, but eternal change. He was bringing in nothing less than the kingdom of God to the world. Remember from chapter 1, verse 14, he came proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand Repent and believe in the gospel. If you're not a Christian, you might hear terms like kingdom of God, repent, believe, the gospel. 
and think that sounds old-fashioned. But I assure you, it was jarring to those who heard it for the first time in Jesus' day. Today, we'll consider the jarring implications of the kingdom of God on three different fronts, or maybe better worded, three jarring implications of Jesus' first coming. The first is that he eats with sinners. He eats with sinners, verses 13 to 17. It starts by him calling a tax collector to follow him, a guy named Levi, also known as Matthew, who wrote Matthew. And just like the call of the first four disciples that we saw last week from chapter 1, who left their fishing business to follow Jesus, this Levi inexplicably leaves his business, his former life, in order to follow Jesus. But Levi's business is not as innocent as fishing. Fishing is amoral or maybe even respectable, but not tax collecting. At least not in these days. It might be respectable, even if undesirable, to be an IRS agent today. But, but in these days, it's something totally different. In first century times, tax collectors were hated above almost any other class or kind of people, especially for Jewish people who were under Roman imposition. And yet some Jewish men were themselves tax collectors for Rome. And hence would have been viewed as traitors by their people. They're serving the Roman occupation of their land. And they are the means by which that brutal Roman army is being funded. Tax collectors were really in some ways the only visible street level representation of the Roman government. And they were famously dishonest. Extremely Corrupt. Here, Matthew's in a tax booth. He's at some part of the city or at a city line or something like that, or a province. He's, he's at some sort of demarcation. When you pass, you pay. How much? Whatever Levi says is what you pay. They didn't post the going rate. They were, they were expected to add a little bit on for their own benefit and, and for their continued devotion to Rome. Being a tax collector in these days then was synonymous with being a robber. There's one ancient piece of graffiti that says, all our tax collectors, all our robbers. They're synonymous. And they were also known for their wild, extravagant living. They were known for their, par their parties, for their drunkenness, for their gluttony. That's Levi. Well, that was Levi. He left all that to follow Jesus. As others did too, apparently. This is getting fast now. Look at, see verse 15. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Sinners, here in this verse, are those notorious sinners. Those who were famous for sinning. Maybe even professional sinners, like harlots. Like Levi, though, they left that to follow Jesus. And it's important to stress that. There's a connection here between, yes, sinners and tax collectors as those who followed Jesus. You see, this isn't Jesus at some sort of raucous party. This is not a scene from Animal House with Jesus in the midst of it. I'm sure it was a lively celebration. I'm sure it was a feast. 
But Jesus welcomes sinners to himself, calling them to repentance and faith, as we just read from chapter 1. That's his message. He's calling them to repentance and faith in the gospel. And hence, this is a post-conversion celebration. He neither keeps sinners at arm's length, nor calls them to some sort of uh, moral improvement trial period before really welcoming them to himself. But he welcomes sinners to himself, those who will see their need for a Savior and follow him. And when that happens, there is reason for great rejoicing. Heaven rejoices, and so Jesus and his friends rejoice. This doesn't mean that Christians can't be friends with sinners who won't believe or haven't believed yet. We can eat with them. We can share hobbies together. We can talk about sports together. We can go to events together. We can be friends. But we should also know that in Jesus' culture, eating with someone like this meant a whole lot more than we do in ours. Eating with someone meant acceptance and shared life. It meant belonging. It meant approval. So to take their repentance and discipleship out of the equation now is to rip out the very heart of this scene in this equation. And yet, nevertheless, there is outrage from the Pharisees. They don't think of these people as those who have repented and believe and now follow Jesus They're simply tax collectors and sinners, verse 16. So they say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he accept them? Why do they belong? Why does he share life with them? How does he approve of them? And Jesus' response is wonderful. Verse 17, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. I came not to call the righteous... But sinners, you see, it's not that the Pharisees here are the well. They're the well, quote unquote. They're not righteous. They're, quote unquote, righteous. They think they're well. They think they're righteous. And a physician is no good to anyone who thinks that they're well, right? A savior is no good to anyone who thinks they're already righteous in their own ability and strength. Jesus is being ironic. He came for those who know they're not well. And it's hard for religious people to see themselves as not well or as sinners. And so it's not surprising that those who know themselves to be sinners, those who were considered professional sinners by their society, would know they need a savior and would see that Savior in Jesus. It should be shocking to us. It's not if we're used to our Bibles. It should be shocking to us. It certainly was to the first century observers. Jesus ate with sinners. He welcomed them to himself and received them as they repented and received his forgiveness. Secondly, He discourages fasting. Jesus discourages fasting. Now, I've worded that in a purposefully provocative way. I will qualify that later on, but I don't want to rush to any qualification too soon. 
We should embrace whatever shock value there is in hearing Jesus discouraged fasting. Because again, it was shocking in Jesus' day when he said of his disciples in verse 19, they cannot fast. Not they don't, or they don't want to, or I'm not going to make them, but they can't fast. That's shocking. You see, John the Baptist and his disciples, they fasted. The Pharisees, these professional religious leaders, they and their followers fasted. Two times a week, in fact, every Monday and Thursday. But onlookers noticed that Jesus' disciples, and Jesus himself, of course, didn't fast. In fact, they were keen to throw big banquet-like parties like we just saw in the previous verses. And that party probably happened on a Monday or a Thursday when some of the community around them was fasting. And it was pretty apparent these guys are not fasting, but pigging out and having a good time and celebrating. So what's the deal? Well, first we need some background. We need to talk about fasting in the Old Testament just a bit here. You see, other than the Day of Atonement, fasting in the Old Testament was never commanded. It was never required. It was always volitional. We come across it fairly often in the Old Testament, but almost always as a description of someone's fasting, not as a prescription for everyone's fasting. It was volitional. And it was circumstantial. You see, Old Testament saints sometimes fasted after the death of a loved one, or when they were ill, or simply in generally bad times, maybe when they were restless in anticipation of a resolution. So Nehemiah would be an example of that, right? He's in exile. He thinks it's about to come. The Lord's going to bring us back to our land and restore us. And how's he going to do it? Well, he fasts. And fasting was sometimes related to repentance for sin. In short, Old Testament fasting is something more like, I can't eat right now. I don't feel like eating right now. I don't want to eat right now. More that than a routine, rigid discipline like the Pharisees demonstrated. They fasted not because of severe circumstances or in repentance, but as a religious discipline, as a sacrifice, as a mark of their commitment to God. In the parable in Luke 18, it's telling about how the Pharisees viewed their own fasting. Remember the Pharisee there praying at the wall? He said, I thank you, God, I'm not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. And Luke tells us that the parable was for, quote, those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So Pharisees trusted in their fasting as a mark of their righteousness. They trusted in their own righteousness. More in line with the godly example of Old Testament fasting is what John the Baptist and his disciples do. They don't fast to earn points with God like the Pharisees. They fasted because they were waiting with bated breath for the Messiah, the Christ. They were like Anna, the prophetess in Luke 2. Remember there it says that she was fasting, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And she saw it in this babe put before her, Jesus. John 
the Baptist. He wasn't just a baptizer. He wasn't just a, a preacher of repentance, but he was a forerunner. He came before one who's bigger than himself. He knew himself to be a forerunner. He said, one is coming after me. So he has great anticipation of this one that's to come after him, and he and his disciples fast in eager anticipation like Nehemiah of old. In Mark 2, though, those nuances of motivation are lost on those who only note that the Pharisees fast and the disciples of John, they fast, and Jesus' disciples don't fast. So is Jesus less righteous? Is he less committed? Is he less serious? Is he less respectable? And Jesus explains what's going on with three different word pictures or illustrations. Three different word pictures. Let's take them in reverse order. The third one is new wine in verse 22. Jesus says in explanation of not fasting, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins but the new wine is for fresh wineskins. You get the picture, don't you? Old wineskins are dry, maybe brittle. And their elasticity has been stretched out by fermentation that's happened again and again and again. And new wine ferments and gases are released. You know that when you pull a cork off, if it's a, you know, a used bottle, you, boom, there's a sound there. Something's been going on inside the bottle. An old wineskin then will burst with new wine in it. Jesus is the new wine. The new covenant he brings is the new wine. And the old wineskins, that is the old covenant, or the old way of thinking of the Pharisees, the old wineskins won't hold the new wine of Jesus and his covenant which means he didn't come merely to inject some fresh juice into tradition or into these traditional containers. He needs a whole new thing. New wine, new wineskin. New spirit and new forms. The second word picture, a new cloth in verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Again, you get it, even if you've never sewed anything in your life. Old clothes have been washed many times, and so they don't shrink anymore. Some shirts you get new from the store, and if you don't put them in the right temperature, you use too much heat, they shrink, right? So you shouldn't put a a new patch on an old garment because the new patch will shrink and it'll pull from the old garment that doesn't. And Jesus' point here is not that we should stick with the old. It's kind of a different illustration than the, the one I just talked about, the new wine. He's not saying that. He's not saying do old with old, new with new. He's simply showing a contrast between the old and the new and saying it doesn't work to put them together. There'll be a tear. There's a big tear coming. He's tearing into this thing, right? Remember when he was baptized? A voice came tearing from the clouds. The clouds were torn open. 
So Jesus is saying that the old and the new are incompatible. The old is already torn and cannot simply be patched up. Jesus didn't come to patch things up. It goes for your life too, by the way. Jesus didn't come to patch things up. He didn't come to inject fresh juice. He came to bring something totally new. And then the last word picture, really the first, a wedding. A wedding. Verse 19, he says, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. In the Old Testament, God portrayed his relationship with his people as a marriage. There's a bride, there's a groom. He's the groom, they're the bride. And so they should be faithful. The book of Hosea highlights the, the failure of Israel in this regard using the marriage picture, right? They, they played the harlot. They were married to God, and yet they went and slept all around with any God, any God they could find. There are also several Old Testament passages that talk about bridegroom and the bride and the groom, different lang- marriage language, in a prophetic way, talking about a day to come. Not just a relationship that should be, but something that's going to come, something new that's going to happen where God is going to take his bride to himself. So we read in Isaiah 62, verse 5, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And that's future tense, shall. That's not just a universal principle here. Isaiah 62 is in in context talking about a new covenant, a new era, a time to come when the suffering servant comes and, and brings in God's kingdom. It's then that Isaiah records, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And so Jesus' Jewish hearers, the first century, they would, have heard, they would have heard bridegroom in a different way than you and I do. Not just a good illustration or neat word picture, but they would have heard it in a prophetic way. An end time sort of way, a fulfillment sort of way. They would have perked up when Jesus said that he is the bridegroom and he's here. So Jesus is saying, it's time. I'm here. The wedding feast has already started. So can you imagine, can you imagine going to a wedding reception and not eating anything? Nothing. It's put before you and you go, no. Or even worse, can you imagine it's your wedding and you decide for the week of your wedding, the wedding day, wedding night, and the week after that, you decide that's a good time to fast. You'd be insane. It's probably never been done in the history of the world. It's never been done. You can't do it. That's what Jesus said. You can't do it. They can't fast. They can't fast. But Jesus tells of a time when they will fast. Verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Though it's oblique to those who first heard it, for those of us who know the whole story, We know what Jesus is referring to when he says, when the bridegroom is taken away. Passive tense, taken away from them. In that day, they will fast. 
That day's referring to that span between the crucifixion and the resurrection. That's what we see in the gospel accounts, don't we? In between the crucifixion and the resurrection, you see sad disciples, defeated disciples. You see shocked people. They're reeling. They are sheep without a shepherd. And we also see the reverse when angels show up or when Jesus shows up and announces the resurrection. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Why are you sad? I'm alive. He's alive. Now, what does that mean for fasting today? Does Jesus really discourage fasting? No, not in total. Not in total. But he sure obliterates a lot of forms of fasting here in this one passage. He obliterates a lot of motivations to fast. You can't fast like the old. You can't fast like Pharisees. Let's, get the, let's make that very clear. You can't fast to earn points with God that will go on your heavenly record and tip the scales to allow you to come in. We don't even fast like John the Baptist fasted. John the Baptist fasted in view of the Messiah who is yet to show up on the scene. Well, he has come. The bridegroom has come. We don't fast like John the Baptist did. We also don't fast in order to punish ourselves or to purify ourselves. We don't fast either to show God that we're serious about something, to let him know that we really want this thing we're praying for, or even worse, to use it as leverage. God, how come you didn't bring that? I even fasted. No. You see, if you fast, Christian, you must do it in a way that represents the arrival of the groom and the new wine of the new covenant. You might have the new wine, but still hold on to an old wineskin of fasting that misrepresents the presence of the Savior. Regardless, we should as Christians, we should celebrate that the groom has come, whether there's fasting here or there or not. The tenor of our lives should be one of great celebration and great joy because the gospel has come to us. Our sins are forgiven. The new covenant is here. He is our God, and we are his people, and that shall not change forever and ever. He has written his law on our hearts and given us hundreds of other promises that are sure and sure and sure. He's put us in the heavenly places already. Yes, there's more still to come. He has gone away to prepare a place for us. But he's given us his spirit and he's still with us. I will be with you always, even to the ends of the age. He has come. The kingdom has come. As Paul wrote in Romans 14, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, or if I can insert or of not eating or drinking. The kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, Jesus breaks the Sabbath. He breaks the Sabbath. Quote, unquote, breaks the Sabbath. Yes, I have to do quote, unquote here. Because he doesn't really break the Sabbath in what we read, and neither do his disciples. That's what he's accused of. And yet also, it's an accusation that Jesus doesn't exactly deny. 
even though he doesn't break the Sabbath, he doesn't deny it, and he could have. His response to the accusation is maybe even more shocking than if he had broke the Sabbath. There are two different scenes related to the Sabbath, one at the end of chapter 2, another at the beginning of chapter 3. Here's the first scene, verse 23, chapter 2, he says, says here, one Sabbath, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, what are they doing? They're doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Now, the first thing to note here is that there was nothing in the law of Moses that forbade what these disciples were doing. They were allowed to pick heads of grain as they walked. And yet what is so remarkable is that Jesus doesn't respond by pointing that out. His response to the Pharisees has less to do with interpreting the law and more to do with who he is. He's above that kind of debate. His response is one with authority about his authority. He equates himself with the great King David. In verse 25, didn't you read what David did? He's referring to 1 Samuel 21. David's on the run from Saul, he's hungry. And so he goes into the tabernacle there and he asks the priest for some food and there's bread there that only the priest is supposed to eat. It's the show bread. And the priest gives it to David. Reason being is likely that David is something more than just a king or even king to be. He's, he's a king who is at times prophetic. He hears from God. He's a king who is sometimes like a, a priest. He intercedes. This happens sometimes in the Old Testament. You get guys like Samuel who, yeah, he was a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. He also acted much more priestly at times than he did a prophet. The lines are confused on purpose because they all get obliterated in Jesus, who is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. And so Jesus says, David had the authority to eat of the priestly bread, I have the authority to let my disciples eat whatever they want to eat. It wasn't lawful for David to do what he did. I'm not saying it's not lawful what they did. I'm just not saying. I don't need to. Why? Because I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 28. He calls himself Lord even of the Sabbath. In saying this, he's equating himself with God. And just like the man who was paralyzed in chapter 2, and Jesus forgave him. And the Pharisee says, who can forgive sins but God? So Jesus, who can say they're Lord of the Sabbath but God? God is the Sabbath giver. God is the Sabbath framer. And Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, which means he can do with it whatever he wants. He's the Sabbath fulfiller. You see, Sabbath here means that sixth day of rest where there is no work. But there were all kinds of Sabbaths in the Old Testament. And there was all this talk of rest. So when Joshua enters the land, God says, it's rest. And yet, Psalm 95 comes along. David writes that and says, there's still a rest for the people of God. Even David there in Jerusalem. There, the kingdom set up, God giving them a place of rest, 
about time. There's peace on all sides. And, and David's still talking about a rest that's still to come. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on this and says, if it's still today, then there's still rest to be had. You see, Jesus is bringing a kind of Sabbath here that is not just about one day. He's saying he is the Sabbath. He is the rest. There's an eternal rest that's still to come, and we can enter in through his blood. The second scene, which dips into chapter 3 here, related to the Sabbath, another scene is that he heals on the Sabbath. Here's the scene, verse 1. He entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus, the, the Pharisees, to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. I mean, already you see, you see the failed motives of these Pharisees here. They're looking for anything. And so you know whatever Jesus does, they don't, they're not going to have much good evidence for it being so wrong. We know that because he's Jesus, but those watching, those maybe seeing their sneer should know they're just out to get him. They're just looking for anything. They're watching to see if Jesus will heal this man with the withered hand. And yet Jesus knows their thoughts and motives, just like he did in chapter 2 when he forgave the paralytic. Here, too, in Mark 3, he asks the Pharisees a a riddling kind of question. Verse 4. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? At face value, this looks like a a moral kind of test, a moral test question. Do you think it's good good to do good on the Sabbath or bad to do good on the Sabbath? Of course, the answer is good on the Sabbath is good, right? Not bad on the Sabbath. But there's more to it than just a simple morality test. Those poetic lines... To do good or to do harm, to save life or kill. That's paraphrasing from Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30, there, Moses sets before the people. He says, I set before you life and good, death and evil. A few verses later, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Jesus is winking back at Moses in Deuteronomy 30 using similar language. You see, in in Deuteronomy 30, Moses was presenting before the people two paths. Good and blessing or evil and curse. Which one's it going to be? Sort of like Joshua. Which way are you going to go? As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Which way are you going to go? Jesus is doing the same thing here with these Pharisees. I'm going to do good. What are you going to do? Do evil and curse? I don't know if they got it or not, but they were silent, it says. They were silent. And then Jesus says he looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Who knows exactly why he was angry? Maybe because they had no idea what he was talking about. Maybe because they're religious leaders and teachers and they have no clue that he's paraphrasing Deuteronomy 30 or even if what that would mean if so. He's anger. He's grieved. And yet he's compassionate to this man with a withered hand, a hand of, you know, it doesn't work. It's, it's crumbled up somehow. And Jesus says, stretch out your hand. The hand doesn't do that, right? It's a withered hand. And Jesus says, stretch it out. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. 
Remember we said last week that Jesus' healings are little foreshadows that he is overturning the curse. The curse is about done. Of course, we know there's still more to, to be undone. He hasn't yet defeated, defeated it in full, brought it to its end, but he, he started to. And healings were the first sign of that, a first sign of the kingdom of God being brought to bear in the world. This man was restored, as one day we all will be. We'll be fully restored if we're in Christ. Jesus doesn't break the Sabbath because he doesn't lift a thing. I mean, speaking on the Sabbath wasn't forbidden. Jesus just spoke and the man was healed. Like God just speaks and worlds exist. Nevertheless, the Pharisees, verse 6, went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. The Herodians were those who openly supported Herod Antipas. They were known to be wealthy. They were known to be the social elite and godless. Godless. What an unliking, uh, unlikely pair, uh, partnership here. Herodians and Pharisees. Have they ever done anything together? Do they have anything in common? They have this in common. Destroy him. They're hell-bent on Jesus' destruction. Now, we know how this all played out. Eventually, they did destroy him. Kind of. There's that resurrection thing. But on Friday, they destroyed him. Even here in Mark 2, this early on in the story, we get two hints of what's to come. One from Jesus, that one day the bridegroom will be taken away from the disciples. And one from the Pharisees, that they started scheming how to destroy him. That's where it's going. On the one hand, that's God's plan, the cross. And that's why Jesus can speak of it even before his enemies do. On the other hand, isn't it insanely blind and backwards? The sin and rebellion going on here in these religious leaders. I mean, Jesus doesn't violate the Sabbath. He speaks and the man is healed. He didn't lift a thing. He didn't work at all. He doesn't need to. He's God. He speaks healing into existence like he speaks worlds into existence. He healed the man and didn't violate the Sabbath. And the Pharisees say, that's it. we got to figure out a way to kill this guy. One commentator, David Garland, put it like this. In their stubborn resistance, it does not dawn on them that if his words are not in accord with God's will, the man would not have been healed, since it's God who forgives sins and affects healing. These critics are so blindly cynical that they are incensed when Jesus does good and saves a life on a holy day, but they have no qualms about doing harm and plotting death on that very same day and with the secular powers at hand, no less. How ironic that Jesus had just talked about two paths, to do good or harm, to save life, or to kill. To kill. These Pharisees were like Israel in the wilderness all over again. 
They chose evil and curse, not good and blessing. But Jesus is like a new Israel, a new and better Israel, all packaged into one guy. He chose good and life and blessing. Proof is the man with the now restored hand. And more than that, Jesus gives life and gives blessing and gives good for those who don't deserve it. He took on our death, our curse, our evil, and he gives life and blessing and good. And he gives it to sinners, sinners like you and like me, some religious sinners who think themselves righteous, and some famous sinners who know themselves not to be righteous. It's amazing, his grace. We pray that you know it. We pray that you would trust him. We pray that you would repent, that you would believe, that you would hear the good news of the gospel of Christ, that you would hear that you are not good and you don't have blessing, but you have curse and you have done evil and you, in your heart at least, have killed even. But Jesus comes and he does good not harm. He comes and he saves life. He doesn't kill. In fact, he was killed for us. That's what the cross is all about. That's where this story's going. That's where our hope lies. On a Savior who welcomes sinners to himself, which Christian means we should sup with him. We should recline at the table with him more than we do. We should sit in his word and under his presence and with him in prayer and we should acknowledge him throughout the day and we should enjoy his presence and talk to him often and it also means that we should welcome others we've been welcomed and so we are to be welcomers we've been fished and we are now fishers of men so let's talk to others about this savior who welcomes sinners, about this groom who has already come. Let us rejoice. Let us celebrate. The new has come, and more is still to come. Let us remember that Jesus gives rest, that we rest in him for salvation, and we find comfort in the fact that he is a high priest who's sympathetic even with our weaknesses, and so we can draw near to him and find help in time of need whenever we are in need. And remember that Jesus heals. He heals. The curse is as good as done. There is no threat right now. Satan is as good as dead. There is no threat for us right now. Ebola is no threat for us. ISIS is no threat for us. Jesus is on his throne. He is bringing in a new heaven and a new earth. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. He will build his church. He will save us to the uttermost. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that Jesus is a friend to sinners like us. We want others here to know of that saving friendship through his cross and resurrection. We want them to hear this good news announcement that he came 
that he lived, that he was righteous, that he died, and that he rose victoriously and now lives forevermore. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we are friends, and not just friends, but even brothers and sisters, that we've been adopted. We're now in the family. We now have your inheritance. We are utterly unworthy, but you are good and kind and merciful. And you have covenanted with yourself to do us good with all of your heart and soul, to love us and to rejoice over us like, like a groom does over his bride on his wedding night. We thank you for grace, Lord. Amen.